Take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. We start a series this morning, a brand new series. If you're new to us today, you get in on the front end of the series. And the series is Seeing Christ in All the Scripture. Seeing Christ in All the Scripture. And this is in way of introduction. This is it's kind of a lead up to six sermons from six types of Scripture, six different places. And all of them will be, hopefully, when we're done, clear portraits and pictures of Jesus Christ to us. That's the hope. That's, that's the aim. If it fails, if the series fails, I, it's because I failed, not because God's Word fails. But, uh, but you'll have to walk along with me here. And I think in the end of these six sermons, or seven, counting this one, we will all be challenged to see Christ in new and fresh ways. You know, the Bible is a unique book. It's unique because it's not 66 distinct books, but rather one large volume. It's distinct from all other literature because it wasn't written by one man, but rather by at least 44 different men. Not on one continent, but on several continents. Stretching not a few years, but thousands of years. Thousands of years. And it is all tied together around one hero. One key figure. One man, the God-man who rises above all else in the Bible. As the jewel, the pearl of great value. He rises above the rest of Scripture. Out of Scripture, He rises as the treasure for which you ought to sell your life and buy the field so you might have the treasure. This hero is no ordinary hero, for he has no flaws and he has no Achilles heel. He is perfect in every way. His name is Jesus. God saves. And if you know Him, then you know He does. But I'm afraid that in our world and in our lives, as we study the Bible, we often forget how marvelous He is. And we often get distracted with different parts of the Bible. Even distracted to the point that we give up on those parts. You know, you, you always sense... The uneasiness. We'll get to uh, the, third uh, the third message from our six messages. And I'll say, turn with me to the book of Zechariah. There will be a great hush in the congregation. And the moment of decision is this. Shall I begin in 1 Kings and thumb towards the middle and hope I land at this strange place called Zechariah? Or... Shall I go to the table of contents and tell everybody on my pew I know nothing about the latter prophets? That's the struggle, right? Is we like certain parts of the Bible. We focus on certain parts of the Bible. We do our daily study in certain parts of the Bible, but we rarely turn to some of the corners that are more difficult for us. And when we do that, we in some way take away from this hero 
We short shift the process of understanding who Jesus is. We need the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. If we don't grasp it that way, if we don't, if we don't take our hands and put it on Jesus that way, then we get a Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible, but one in our own likeness. One that we're comfortable with. You hear this Jesus talked about often. You might not talk this way, but you'll hear it talked about. You turn it on CNN, they have their cast of characters, and the subject is the relationship between Christ or between the church and Jewish people. And they've got a rabbi, who we can't pronounce his name, and someone representing the church. And they're having this discussion about the same Bible and they're in their pet scriptures talking around each other. You've, saw, you've watched this debate. You know, the, the preacher on the panel generally wants to get over on pictures of Jesus in the New Testament and talk about Jesus and the rabbi is now tuned out because he's finding the next text in the Torah which he wants to bring out and show that his religion is better than the Christian religion. You've been there. You've heard it in the restaurant when you're sharing the gospel with your friend and he or she tells you, well, you know, I just like to think about God is love and Jesus is love. Jesus just went around. He loved everybody. See, they've picked and chosen what they want to know about Jesus, but they haven't looked at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation they're not dealing with the fact that God is a God of love, but He also is a God of wrath. They don't want to deal with the Jesus who looks at the Pharisees and says, you guys are a bunch of dead men's bones, whitewashed tombs, scorpions, serpents. They don't want to deal with those verses because that's not the milky white, lovely, sweet Jesus. Sometimes when our Sunday school teachers finished talking about Jesus, I thought his hands could not have been calloused, nor his feet dirty. He wasn't a real man. And it was mainly because he was cut away from the Scripture. And so what we're doing in this series is building, hopefully, a better grasp, a better understanding of how Christ is presented to us from Genesis to Revelation. We won't go through all the books of the Bible. But we will pick, I have picked strategic scriptures from different parts of the Bible to cover in our series. But I kind of want to back up and say, should we be doing this at all? And I want to answer that scripturally. In Luke chapter 24, we have an amazing account given to us by the gospel writer Luke as he tells us about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week, early in the morning, just as the sun was breaking. The first people, we're told in Luke's account, to actually see an empty tomb were women. The first clue, the first clue that we're dealing with a real story, not some fabricated lie that was given to us by much later generations, is the fact that here we have women verifying the resurrection of Christ before any man does. As a matter of fact, the women are the only ones who believe what they see at the beginning. 
They run to tell the disciples, and what does Peter and John do? They don't take their word. They're not looking for a resurrected Jesus. They got to go see it for themselves, right? Old, old literature in the ancient world had little regard for women. Do you realize that women could not enter a court of law as one who testified on behalf of a defendant or on behalf of a prosecution? The court of law didn't recognize women as a valid testimony. When someone tells you this is a fabricated story, you can smile and say, I don't believe so. And you can give them that as just one piece of evidence. This is a magnificent chapter of the Bible. It starts out with what you would think would be our heroes being the thick-headed blockheads that they often are. They don't want to believe what they're being told. And it starts off with the women as our eyewitnesses. And it moves from that to this story of a seven-mile journey of disciples, two disciples, walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And in that, we find yet another piece to verify the historiosity of the chapter we're going to look at today. If you were fabricating the story, you would not have these people traveling to Emmaus. Emmaus, to put it in county terms, is like saying a person traveled to Rabbit Town. Yeah, some of you live in County County, you have no clue where Rabbit Town is. That would have been the reaction of a lot of people in their day. Emmaus, I've heard of it. How exactly do you get there? If Luke were fabricating what we're reading, he would have chosen an easily recognizable place to have his two disciples traveling to. But he's not fabricating anything. He's recording history. And as these men walk along, they're traveling around there, that seven miles. They're talking, look at verse 14, about all these things that had happened. Now that phrase rings in our ears in this chapter. All these things, all these things. What things are they talking about? Well, clearly, the events that are taking place just prior to their travels, which is that during the Passover, we've had an interruption to the previously scheduled events. The, the man, Jesus, was put on trial for trumped-up charges of which he is not guilty, crucified by a bunch of bloodthirsty Jews, under the hand of a coward, Pontius Pilate. And this morning, some of our friends told us, he ain't in the ground anymore. That's all these things that happened. They're having a conversation. Wouldn't you be talking about it? I could see it now in our day. I mean, it'd be all over Twitter, Facebook, TMZ. The tabloids, man, they'd be eating it up. It would be the news story of the day. Nobody in Jerusalem was not talking about what we're talking about as we find it in Luke 23 and 24. This strange, eccentric, great teacher has been crucified and nobody understands why except that the Jews didn't like him and the Romans were too cowardly to take care of him. 
And so they're just talking. And all of a sudden, while they're just talking and discussing together, Jesus draws near in verse 15. Draws near to them. But a miraculous thing happens. There's a veil over their eyes. They can't see Him for who He is. And He asked a very simple question. What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? That's like God in the garden saying, Adam, where are you? It's a rhetorical question in some ways. He knows the answer. But He wants to hear them say it. What are you guys talking about? Their response validates my earlier conclusion. Man, where have you been? Under a rock? Mary Magdalene tweeted out earlier this morning. You didn't get it? We're talking about what's been going on. The things that have happened. Jesus says in verse 19, what things? You can see him now. Poor soul. He has no hope. He must be thick-headed if he doesn't know what's going on in Jerusalem in these days. Well, tell him. We're talking about the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had a form of Jesus, but not Jesus. These are disciples, and they don't have Jesus. They have a form. They've missed him. They've missed him. Notice they call him a prophet. I'm not saying Jesus wasn't a prophet. He was, but he was more than that, was he not? He was the prophet in the prophecy. He fulfilled it all. And they don't get it yet. Yes, and besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us Caught us off guard. We weren't expecting this kind of news. Now put it on pause for a minute and let's talk. Are you serious you weren't expecting this kind of news? That's what I want to say to these guys. Jesus said over and over again, the man, the Son of God, shall be delivered over, crucified, and on the third day he will rise again. You can take that temple and tear it down in three days I'll resurrect it again. He wasn't talking about the temple. He's talking about his body. I give you no greater sign than you already have, the sign of Jonah. I shall spend three days in the belly of the earth and then I will be raised again. You don't need another sign. I'll give you that sign. These women, they came back after they were going to wrap the Lord and give Him a good proper burial and we were caught off guard that they were saying He wasn't there. It's the third day. I don't know what's going on. They had guards and they had a stone. And... Clueless, aren't they? But before you make fun of them, realize they had what over their eyes? A veil. A veil. Jesus looked as if He was a shadow to them. They didn't quite recognize Him. 
Some of you are in that condition right now. Some of you, you look at Jesus, but through a veil. You can't see Him yet. He's fuzzy. You're comfortable thinking of Him as you want to think about Him. But you're very uncomfortable as the Bible presents Him. Because in, behind the veil, you can't see Him for who He is. You're amazed by us people who walk around talking about Him as if He was real, resurrected, and living. Reigning and ruling and directing our lives. You're amazed by it, just like these disciples on the road to Emmaus. Listen, that's how we all were in the darkness of our sin. I'm praying for you. I've been praying for you all week that you'd be here so that the Holy Spirit might lift the veil. And today, for the first time, you might see Him for who He is in all His splendor and glory. And if you can't see Him today, don't give up. But beg God that He raise the veil over the next six weeks. Plead with Him. You'll never be sorry that you saw the Son of God face to face in all of His glory. These guys are good men. They're disciples. But they're still behind the veil. They can't see Jesus for who He is. They got a part, but not the whole. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found just as the women had said. But Him... They did not see. Some have asked, how can there be such detail in this text with Luke? We, we have several routes we can take. And I just want to pause and say, I think early church history is right when it says that our writer Luke was one of the men on the road to Emmaus that day. That it is Luke who was still suffering behind the veil and could not quite see the Lord. That's not a guarantee. It may not have been him. He may have heard this account from someone else. And that's okay. If that's where you see it. But I think as you go through and you study it, it just becomes a little more apparent that what we're dealing with here is an eyewitness to these events. He actually saw it happening. Just as they're behind this veil and they cannot see, verse 25, Jesus says to them, O oh, foolish ones. Now don't misunderstand him here. Foolish does not mean moron. Foolish means slow of heart. He gives us the definition. They're not fully aware. That's the way we can understand it. O oh, you who are not fully aware of what you're dealing with, you're slow of heart to believe all, notice that word all, it's going to be repeated. All that the prophets spoke. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter His glory? And the foundation, one of the texts, is the foundation of what we're going to do over the next six weeks is verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scripture the things concerning Himself. 
Jesus started in Genesis and went to Malachi over the course of that journey explaining to them his self from the Old Testament. So often we treat Jesus as if he's an alien. That he was beamed down to us by Scotty. And he just kind of poof appeared on the world history scene. Very eccentric, very wild, very odd, very unexpected. The truth is, God had spent thousands of years preparing the world for the coming of His Son. The world had not seen it nor accepted it. Not even the Jewish world. So what they should have seen, like neon signs pointing them to Jesus, they saw as mere history. They saw as Mere acts of God, but not as pointers, indicators, symbols, types, pointing them to Jesus. They have misunderstood the Old Testament. So, he taught them concerning himself. Now, I want to move quickly as we look through here, and then I want to make some points out of the next part of the text. He then goes with them to a home and they eat and it's only when he breaks bread that they recognize it must have been a distinctive way Jesus did things. When he breaks that bread and speaks the blessing, the veil is gone. And they make an amazing statement. They made an amazing statement about what happened when they recognized him. Verse 32. They say to each other, after recognizing this is the Lord Jesus we've been talking with, look what they say. Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road? While He opened, expounded, exposited the Scriptures. Does your heart burn when you read the Old Testament? If not, you might be missing Christ. The reason their hearts burned was not because Jesus had some magic dust to make it that way, but He taught the Scriptures as they were meant to be taught in a Christ-centered way, and their hearts were burning into flame. They knew. They, they, they were drawn like gnats to a flame. This is the meaning of the Scripture. We've read it all our life. We've heard rabbis talk about it. We've been in the tabernacle. I mean, we've been in the, uh, excuse me, the synagogue. We've gone to the temple. We've seen all these things. And now for the first time, the light has come on and we see this isn't about just doing and not doing. This isn't about just giving a sacrifice or not giving a sacrifice. This is about Jesus. He's not in the tomb because He's the one who fulfills the promise. He's who we've been waiting on. That's what happened in their hearts. And it was confirmed because they saw Him for who He was at the, di at the dinner table. And then He's gone. Okay? And these disciples run to find the eleven and tell them that they visited with the Lord. And that He had told them, they actually recant to them the message that He had given them on the road. 
So one reason that we teach the Old Testament from the perspective of Christ is because Christ taught the Old Testament from the perspective of Himself. We're doing what Jesus did when we do this. It's not, it's not strange that we would do it. It would be strange not to do it. Okay? <clears throat> but I want to jump here and show you the final appearance of Jesus to His disciples. The 11th appearance was to His 11 gathered together. This passage mirrors for us the passage in Acts chapter 1. This is not a mirror. This is not a mirror of Matthew 28. This is not them on the hillside. This is just before he goes back up into heaven. He meets with them. And he, his disciples, he's come to them. And he offers peace to them. And he asked them for something to eat so he could eat it and show them he's not a ghost, he's real. He verified his physical nature. Verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you. That everything written about me, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. I want to pause there and make a couple points quickly. First of all, we teach Christ from the Old Testament because that's how Christ taught the Old Testament. Second point of the sermon is this. Christ taught Himself from the Scripture. I know it sounds similar, but it's just distinct. We're teaching Christ, but I want to make the points very specifically that Christ taught Himself this way. Christ did it from the Scripture. He didn't give them a new Scripture. He gave them Scripture. Jesus doesn't write for us any of the New Covenant Scriptures. None of the New Testament. He depended Paul depended. Timothy depended. The Apostle John depended on the Old Testament to teach Christ. They had no New Testament. Christ and the Apostles taught Christ from the Old Testament Scriptures. Look at it in verse 44. These are the words that I spoke to you. This is how I taught you. How did I teach you? I taught you from the Scripture. How does he classify the Scripture? The Law of Moses, the Prophets, the Psalms. That's the way the Jews talked about the whole Old Testament. You got the first five books, the Law of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch. You've got the Prophets. The first Prophets, the Old Prophets, are the books of history. From Joshua all the way to Esther. Those aren't classified as history books in the Jewish world. They're classified as former prophets. And then you have the latter prophets. That would be Jeremiah, Isaiah, and our friends like Zechariah, Haggai, Hosea that we don't like to talk so much about. I, I taught you from the Scripture the Law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings, or the Psalms. The Psalms are representative of the group 
Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomons, Ecclesiastes. And this is how the Jews classified their Bible, their scriptures. So what Jesus is saying is, not just that you should teach me from the Old Testament, but this is how I taught you from the scripture about myself. Not just one scripture here and one scripture there, but from all the scripture. Everything concerning myself, I brought to you from the Old Testament. He said it in his own ministry. I don't bear witness of myself, but rather it is my Father who bears witness about me. When did God bear witness about his Son? Yes, in the miraculous voice from heaven at his baptism, but yes, he bore witness about his Son in the Old Testament. Jesus didn't have to tell them about himself for himself. He went to the Old Testament and told them about himself. So Jesus taught himself from the Scriptures to them. Third point, very important. Without a miraculous work of God, you cannot see Jesus in all the Scripture. Now, listen. Don't fancy that you've studied the Bible very much in your life. Because you haven't studied it as much as these men studied it. They knew the Old Testament, particularly the law, better than any of us could hope to know it. And they didn't understand. They didn't get it. When did they get it? Not when he was teaching them for three years. They got it when he opened their minds. Do you see that? He supernaturally, miraculously opened their minds to understand the Scripture. You can't hope, you cannot hope to know Christ in all the Scriptures unless verse 45 is true of you. Unless God has supernaturally, miraculously opened your mind to see Christ in all the Scripture. You can go to any higher education department of literature and sit down with any professor and if he's worth his salt, she's worth her salt, they can talk with you about the Bible and they know it as well or not, if not better than you know it. But when they finish talking, they will have only treated it as a book. A dead book like all the other books of ancient history. Why? Not because you're smarter than them, but because God hadn't opened their mind to see it. To them, it's still just literature. It's just history. And so when we see Christ in the Scriptures, we take no pride in ourselves of how smart we are, how much more bright our mind is than their mind, but rather we say, God, you have done this thing. Worship God only when you see Christ in the Scripture. When your heart melts like wax before the Bible, that's not your doing. That's the work of God. If it's never happened, pray it happens. Beg and plead God that He open your mind. Verse 46, our final point. 
is that he, the Christ that is, perfectly fulfilled all the Old Testament. Everything is fulfilled in Christ. In Christ. There's no dangling lines still waiting out there. They've all been tied in, anchored in to the man, Jesus Christ. All the lines of promise of the Old Testament have been rooted into him. Now, I've made a presentation of, some, of my understanding of this passage. But how do we know that's how they understood? Turn with me quickly at the end here. I want to do this with you. Turn with me to Acts. And I, just want to, I just want to take the time to show you several disciples who either heard firsthand this Luke 24 account or were taught that this happened. And how did they understand the Old Testament? What did they do with it? Well, we come to Acts chapter 2, and at Pentecost, Peter rises in front of the crowd of gathered Jews. They've just celebrated Pentecost, the great feast of the blessing of God, the pouring out, the prefiguring of the pouring out of the Spirit of God on all the sons of God and daughters of God. And now they've experienced the fulfillment. The Spirit of God's been poured out. And I just want to quickly run through his sermon here. Peter stands up. In verse 16 he says, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Old Testament, latter prophet. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, a great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. What's he doing? He went to the Old Testament to a passage these Jews would have never tied the way he did to Jesus, and he ties it directly to Jesus. Men of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with what? Mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says, what's he doing? He's quoting the Psalms. David said... I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. He quotes it and then look what he does. Brothers, I say... We are confident 
that the patriarch David both died, was buried, and we have his tomb with us this very day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Peter took a text that they never would have tied to the resurrection of Jesus and he tied it directly to the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because he understood Luke 24. He understood that when you go to the Old Testament, you're not reading it simply as a history of the people of Israel, but that history is a great drama pointing like a neon sign to one man, Jesus Christ, and everything that's written there goes to him and him alone. And that's how he interprets it. Through Christ, he interprets it. He's not done. He goes to the most quoted verse of the Old Testament, Psalm 110, and quotes it again, saying, David, verse 34, did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. How can he say that? Because of the truth that he read and knew in his heart and mind from Psalm 110. How did he know Jesus was who he said he was? Because he knew the Old Testament and he applied it to Jesus Christ. Maybe Peter's an anomaly. He's the only one. Peter tended to get off his rocker at times, you know. Run out ahead of his headlights. Look at Acts chapter 7. We will not read this whole speech. I didn't ask you to pack a lunch, so it's not fair. And I get really excited about it. Listen, the elders have accused Stephen of disrespecting the temple, of tearing down the law of Moses. That's what he's under accusation of, right? And this is what he is being accused of. It's given to us right here. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. That's what they're saying. They stirred all the people up. That's in Acts 6, verse 11. But then he answers them. And you would think, Stephen, be tactful, man. Be careful. Don't say blasphemous stuff. Stephen can't help but say what Jesus said in Luke 24. Because Jesus is his Lord. And the Lord interpreted the Old Testament through the grid of Jesus Christ. So therefore, if he's going to talk to them about the Old Testament, guess where he's got to go? To Jesus Christ. If it means he's stoned, he's got to testify to Jesus Christ. And he doesn't do it from his own mind, from his own thoughts, or from his own experience. He does it from the Old Testament. What you have in Acts 7 is a short, condensed version of the entire Old Testament. He goes back and says, Abraham, Moses, the kingdom, all pointed to Jesus. And when he comes to the end of his speech, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. What is he saying? You have a veil over your heart and your mind. You can't understand that the Old Testament is about Jesus. You don't get it. He's accusing the greatest teachers of his day of missing the point. Where does he get this boldness? He knew what happened on the road to Emmaus. He understood what happened in the upper room even though he wasn't there. He knew the Lord taught himself from the Bible this way and I must teach this way. 
As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who, who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. How, why did they didn't keep the law? Why did they not keep the law? They didn't see Jesus. These were holy men. They kept the law, 610 of them. They knew them backwards and forwards and applied them to their lives, even down to the measuring out of little grains of salt when they cooked their food. And how far they could walk without exerting energy and breaking the Sabbath. He said, you didn't keep the law. Why? Because you missed Jesus. You didn't do it because you didn't know Him. They stoned Him for that. That gets you stoned in a synagogue. Or a temple. Maybe these two guys have bumped their heads. Maybe they missed the point. Paul. Paul in Acts 13. Knowing what happened in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus in the upper room, Paul can't help, though he's been trained by the greatest teacher of his day to understand the Old Testament like a good Jew, can't help but understand it as a saved Jew in the prism of Jesus Christ. He rises up and says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, verse 16, 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he held them out. He led them out of it. Okay? So we see again, he's going to go through the history of Israel, just like Stephen did. But where is he going to end? Well, he's going to end by saying this. Verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. He took Psalm 110 again and puts it on Jesus. Paul interprets the scriptures this way. Paul, the great teacher of the word of God, in all of his epistles, is constantly going back to the Old Testament and applying, and applying those scriptures to Jesus. Not in pieces and parts, but in whole. All of it back to Jesus. I tell you, Jesus Christ is the animal slain outside the Garden of Eden in which His skin covered, His righteousness covered our first parents. Jesus Christ is, He is the promised one of Abraham. The seed that would come into the world and be a blessing to all the nations. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the one who appeared to Moses and called himself, I am. That's our Jesus. That's not some other God, that's him. He's right there for us. He led them in the wilderness. He gave them the law. He conquered the land. He is the greater Joshua. Joshua, the name means Yahweh saves. Joshua is the Hebrew for Jesus. That's not just a surface connection because what happens in Joshua, he roots out all the, the enemies, the physical enemies of Israel, and he conquers the entire land. 
that was promised. And isn't that what Jesus has done for you? Hasn't he defeated your greatest enemies? Hasn't he given you his promised land? He's the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. He's the one placed in the kingdom for such a time as this. He's the son of God who did not see corruption but was seated at the right hand of the Father and reigns on high. This is Jesus. In all of his many facets, in all of his many pictures, God is painting for us and picturing for us one treasure. One miraculous treasure. Jesus Christ. So I want to close by warning you. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 3, he warns us. He says, verse 12, talking about when Moses went up and received the law on the mountain. And then when he came down, he was so bright with God's glory, he had to veil himself because the people couldn't stand to see him. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. The veil was placed over them. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. When the people in the Old Testament read their history, they read it without Christ, therefore their minds were hardened. Their hearts were unrepentant. They didn't want to see Jesus in all of His glory. And they're that way today. Some of you are that way today. You've rejected Christ and you don't see Him. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. What would I warn you of? Reading the Bible as if it's a piece of literature. Please, I beg you, read it like the book it is. A living book that's sharper than any two-edged sword. A piercing arrow that will go to your very heart and soul and bring you to Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ in the Scripture, not just read the Bible. Every time you read it, look for Him. He's there. He may be in the dark shadows. He may be up near the front. But He's there. Peer into the darkness until you see the light. Don't give up looking for the light. Lest a veil fall, continue to fall over you and you can't see Him. Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit is, the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are being transformed when we read the Bible with Christ-centered eyes and we look from Genesis to Revelation for our Lord. We're being made into His image. And the veil that was once on us is removed and our hardened hearts are melted like wax before our great God and we sing the praise of our Savior. From the Song of Solomon to 1 Timothy. We sing the praise of our Savior. You say, I'm hard this morning. Look for Jesus. Turn your eyes 
upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely shadow-like dim in the light of His glorious grace. You say, my heart, Carlton, is straying from the Lord. There's hope. Look to Jesus. You say, I never have looked at Him. Look to Him. He's there. He's there. And you've got a big playground. 66 books. Read them and look for Him. The reason I commended earlier in the year that you read through the Bible in this year is because you've got to see Him for all of, it, all of His beauty. I, if you didn't start when I recommended it, it's okay. Start on today's date and just pick up. Don't worry about what you missed. You'll get it next year when you read through the Bible. First time I read through the Bible, I was 19 years old. 19 years old. Now having read through it almost annually, I can tell you I see Jesus better today than I did when I was 19. Why? Because He has opened my mind to the Scriptures. He has removed the veil that I might see Him. That's what we want to do for the next six weeks. See if God will pull the veil back. Just pull the veil back and let us see His glory.